You're listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, Paul. Hi, Bob. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Pretty good. Nice fake background you got there. Thank you. You don't want to see the real background. You just can't handle it. <laughs> this is my real background. Well, your this background. Is, this is the gritty right. truth about my life you're looking at. For, for those people just listening, Bob has books upon books and, and pictures and photographs. It's the background of a scholar. And if, if, you're, if you're just listening, I should tell you that Paul has fake books upon fake books. A beautiful window of a, of a view. Well, never mind. What? Background of a fraud. I wouldn't go that far. I was just going to say fake scholar. I wouldn't call you an out-and-out fraud. So anyway, let me tell let me tell us what's going on here. For the few who may not know who Paul Bloom is, well-known psychologist, now at the University of Toronto, an emeritus at Yale. You seem so young, Paul. So young. I, I associate emeriti with, you know. They do some calculation based on a combination of your age and how long you've been at Yale. And mm-hmm. I've been at, I was at Yale since 1999. So when you mm-hmm. add it all up, I passed a magic number. There was a ceremony where um, where all the emeritus professors uh, were introduced, and I it was very rare. <laughs> and you, and you helped them with their walkers. It was it was online. It's very rare. I'm in with like seven, like 40 other people, and I am the youngest. I am the uh, youngest. Like I could be their children. Yeah. Well, wow. that's yeah. No, you're you're uh, you're looking good. You must be doing something right. Maybe it's the air up there in Toronto, the chill the, Canadian air. Yeah, it's the escape of the pressures of the uh, American politics. Oh, please! Today is a today is a fateful day. This will not air right away, but today is a day in which, uh, in which many Americans, including me, voted, and I'm I'm not sure I'm going to be delighted with the outcome. But I digress. Let's uh, let's talk about what we're going to talk about. And and first, say you've written a lot of books. Right. Uh, what are your your faves? Uh, against empathy is perhaps the most relevant to what we're going to be talking about, at least in the second part of the conversation. Definitely. Uh, the sweet spot more recently, just babies and so on. But I want to start by talking about a book that is not quite out yet, but will be in a couple of months, I guess, uh, I that, that you have written called Psych. I want to talk about that a little, and then I want to talk about a book I'm writing on cognitive empathy and get you to help me with the book. Give me uh, vital insights. That sounds good. Um, I, I haven't talked about Psych very much. I'm sort of, you know, you're supposed to hold back on it till the book comes out. So this is, this is fun. I thought the um, new philosophy was encourage pre-orders. Isn't that the new publishing strategy? Yeah, I think you're supposed to go right like a, a couple of weeks before and then really hit up. Pre-order. When is the book coming out? The end of February. So okay. around February 15th, everybody in America and Canada should go pre-order. Okay, the book. so that's that that'll be a few months. But I don't think it's it's too soon to start stoking anticipation. Let's 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 stoke. Let's stoke. Um, the, it's, it's called Psych. Yeah. The the subtitle is um the story of the mind. Mm-hmm. And um and it is an overview of all of psychology. And that's hopefully, pretty ambitious. Uh, yeah, it was it was a it was a fun book to write. It was a pandemic book. Um, uh-huh. When I proposed it, I had I I've ta- I taught an intro psych course uh, at Yale. I want to teach at Toronto next semester. I have an online course which a lot of people have watched. So I figured I'd just take the notes from these courses, put it together in a book, little book, short book, kick it out in six months. Everyone's happy, 
And the book took a couple of years and it is twice as long as any book I've, I've written because apparently there's a lot to be said about psychology. Now, your books have been concise, I would say. So this puts it at what, 100,000 words or something? 140. 140. Yeah. Uh, that's a pretty that's a pretty long book, but you would expect no less of a book that purports to give you an overview of the entire discipline of psychology. Whole discipline. So this is not a classic textbook, but something that could be used in classes, I guess, as well as being read by the layperson for sheer enjoyment. <laughs> it can be. You should read a book. That's for, yeah, it, it can be used in classes. I would never discourage somebody who had a class from assigning it. But it's mostly meant uh, for the layperson, uh, for um, sheer enjoyment. I'm, I'm thinking a little bit as I wrote it of Bill Bryson's great books um, about ah. the body, about the world. Um, I want this to be sort of uh, someone who wants to learn all about psychology, who doesn't really want to take a class on it, doesn't want to slog through a textbook. Um, so it's meant to be exhaustive. It's meant to be fun to read. And at times it's opinionated. So... Mm -hmm. um, in fact, the, the subtitle was going to be something like an opinionated tour of the mind. But my editor convinced me that opinionated uh, makes me sound like a jackass. So, um, and it, it's kind of a, a bad word with bad connotations. So huh. we, uh, These days, when, when opinions are getting the world into so much trouble. Exactly. Um, so uh, I'm curious how you handle a few things. You don't have to say any more than you feel like saying right now. Um, but well, first of all, how do you handle the organization of it if it's not a classic textbook? Yeah, um, uh, it's a good question. I, I, I struggle with it. it. It's largely traditional as textbooks and courses go where I start with the brain and I end with social and clinical. Oh. So uh, roughly going from the sort of hard science, form okay. of psychology, you want to call it to soft science. But, but it's kind of idiosyncratic. So my first chapter is on the brain, but my second chapter is on consciousness. Uh-huh. I found it such a cool topic. And it's, it's, you know, anybody, people who take psych, there's a lot of interesting things are interesting in psych, but people don't know they're interesting before they, they sort of get into it, like visual perception or nuances of memory. But everyone's interested in consciousness. And, and you know, so I wanted to, to jump in with it early on. So you on. actually get into like the mind-body problem? Yeah. Like why is uh, it like something to be alive? I don't fully resolve it, but, um, but um, I, I, get, I get into it. I get into it. I, I talk about both the sort of hard problem, what David Chalmers calls the hard problem, which is, um, you know, how does a, a, a lump of bloody flesh give rise to experiences? Um, but also I talk about things like a phenomena like attention and a habit mm -hmm. and sleep, all which are sort of topics of consciousness that are often not used that way. You know, I, I, I have a lot of William James in my book, and William James was a genius when he described consciousness and how how something you know you make if there's anything important in your life make it habit make it automatic make it unconscious and that's mm -hmm. the key to life now he was a, he was a truly a great mind at work so many things he said stand up today and, you know, you and, and a great writer too. a great writer um some say better than his uh, maybe more famous brother henry um well the other thing they say is that uh henry james what is it? Henry James wrote like a psychologist and William James. Then there's the rest of it, which I forget. Something I, I think it amounts something, to something being like a that really is, good writer, probably. Something but, like that. William James is a joy to read. And you read his Principles of Psychology, which I think is written in 1890. And mm -hmm. it's so good. It, mm -hmm. is, it is in some way a bit troubling for my field that you could read something in 1890 and would feel fresh ah. and imaginative and clever. Yep. Like you can get a lot through kind of careful introspection and observation, even without modern laboratory equipment. 
That's right. So, so much of it was, well, I received a letter from a man from Madagascar who told me the strangest <laughs> thing. Or, you know, have you ever noticed that children like to climb? And he talks about children liking to climb. And, you know, yeah. there's a lot of, you look up climbing in modern textbooks, you don't find anything, but children do like to climb. It's true. I once was one. So, um, do you do you get into evolutionary psychology explicitly? I absolutely do. I don't, I don't have... Um, a chapter like this is evolutionary psychology because uh -huh. I actually think evolutionary psychology is too important for that. I I, I weave through an evolutionary perspective through um, the whole book, but mostly I, I, I explain natural selection and I explain evolutionary arguments for for uh, the relevance to this to psychology in a chapter uh, called Appetites, where I go through I, I talk about um, sex, uh, sexual appetites. I talk about compassion and kindness. A bit on disgust, a bit on hunger, because those things really easily lend themselves to an evolutionary perspective. So the, the book is kind of assuming all along that the mind is a thing designed by natural selection, and that that is evident in the book. That's, that's right. I mean, your 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 moral animal uh, uh, ideas, you know, shine through it. It's it sort of it's some way it's it's. I try to write psychology in a way that's informed by neuroscience and informed by evolutionary psychology and informed by other disciplines in in a way that um that isn't sort of like oh my god i'm an evolutionary psychologist let me make these these you know wild and radical claims but more in the mm -hmm. fact that you know something like vision vision psychologists are the original evolutionary psychologists because um it's hard to understand you can't really understand visual perception unless you assume that it's been designed to perceive the world yeah memory but then certainly for things like sex and language and and reasoning what would you say is the status of evolutionary psychology within psychology these days? Yeah. Um, you still find, I don't want to call them deniers, kind of a loaded term. You still find skeptics, right? And in fact, I mean, has there been a little bit of a, a backlash at what is perceived as and possibly caricatured as evolutionary psychology or what? Yeah, it, it's, it's a good question. And too much of my answer is shaped by Twitter, where I, I, I see people <laughs> on both sides. Um, on the one hand, you got deniers. There are some people who think you shouldn't, you know, they're not creationists, but they they are, are say, hardcore empiricists. And they believe that everything about the mind is shaped by culture and society and learning. We're, we're blank slates. And that, 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 that perspective, I think, which is, I think has been roundly debunked in every possible way, still alive and well in some circles. And then you get to other extremes. I don't want to name names, but there are people I know who, who describe them as evolutionary psychologists and often make outlandish adaptationist stories, which have little support for them, often as are purposefully, you know, tendentious and politically uh, motivated. And, and I think some of the reaction to evolutionary psychology is when people think about evolutionary psychology, they think of somebody arguing that, I don't know, uh, blue is associated with boys and pink is associated right. with girls due to this sort of bizarre evolutionary account. And, and they see the worst of it. Right. Uh, I think that's all true. The, um, do you get into the replication, so-called replication crisis at all, which, which I think has afflicted more fields than just psychology. I mean, in, in academia broadly, there's actually not much incentive to replicate experiments and so you know findings get trumpeted and then they stay trumpeted and nobody yeah. ever checks you know 
Um, I, I get it. I, I have a chapter called um, something like uh, "Note on a Crisis," and um, and I, I, I explain the replication crisis, why it exists, um, how we've been doing our psychology very badly for for a long time, doing doing our, our studies in ways that make it much easier to find a positive finding than we would admit to. Uh-huh. And that's just one crisis. There's another crisis. You can call it the weird crisis, where weird is an acronym right. that Joe Henry and his colleagues describe a Western educated, industrialized, rich democracies that our psychology tends to be a psychology of the fairly small percentage of the world that live in America and Europe. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then when you go to other societies, you find it's quite different. Yeah. So I, like, actually- I talk about the crisis. I actually uh, looked at the books uh, space on Amazon.com and saw that you get into conspiracy theories. I do. Yeah, they, I think they claim you do. Do you have no recollection of this? Do you deny this vehemently? I, so this is the description on Amazon.com? I think it says that. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. No, I, I could but, be wrong. You know, it's the kind of thing that a publicist would pick out. There, there are powerful forces that are conspiring to, to spread this information about my book. And, yeah, well, that's a good example. Uh, well, anyway, also, let- I'm losing followers on Twitter. Um, call that a coincidence. But, um, but I do get into conspiracy theories. And what I say about them, and one of my readers is a friend of mine, and he, he begged me to take this out of the book. But I think conspiracy theories are, um, I have two things to say about them. One thing is conspiracies do exist. Uh, I, I quote this Washington Post article that, gives, that that's, has something like, know your conspiracy and list 10 conspiracies and you have to tick off the ones that are true. And some of them are true. The CIA did dastardly things. Mm-hmm. Nixon did dastardly things. Big companies do terrible things. People get together and, cons- make, and conspire mm-hmm. against people. And so somebody who says, oh my gosh, there's the following conspiracy by uh, somebody stole an election, somebody did this, somebody with COVID. There's... They may be wrong, and I think almost all conspiracies are wrong, but there's, it's not a mind that's broken. It's just people being a little bit too, too credulous. Well, don't, don't you think in general a lot of things we think of as uh, mental pathologies are kind of normal tunings set up to 11? I, I mean, it would make yeah. sense in theory to be very attentive to the possibility that uh, two people – are colluding against your interests. I mean, even in a hunter-gatherer society, which presumably was the context of of the evolution of the human mind by and large, um, you, you'd want to you'd want to know if two people are kind of teaming up against you, right? So you you, you and, and the price for not suspecting that could, in principle, be high. So you would expect that maybe there would be uh, a little bit of hypersensitivity to begin with, so hypersensitivity to begin with on that front, false positives being favored, maybe, I don't know. In some realms, make, they certainly are. Um, I don't make that argument, but the hiring seems exactly right. Assume you can't be perfect. Assume you can't notice conspiracies if and only if they happen. Suppose you have to err one way or another, which is true for so many things. Better to err by over-assuming conspiracies mm-hmm. because the cost of, of assuming one when it doesn't exist may be some embarrassment, some excess caution. The cost of missing one when it does exist could be catastrophic. Right. So, so if you had to design an imperfect creature, you'd get it to be overtuned for conspiracies. I mean, I would say the same thing falls for um, issues like anxiety and fear. Better mm-hmm. to be uh, um, 
Oh, I'm trying to remember that the, the evolutionary psychiatrist who uh, who described it. So I'm blank on his name, but he Nessie? made Nessie, Randy Nessie. That's right, exactly. Randolph Nessie um, makes the 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 wonderful point that you know people with too much anxiety end up in psychiatrists' office and seeing psychologists. People with too little anxiety end up in prisons and morgues. <laughs> so, and we just but, and they you know they they just take too many risks and they uh, right. and they're in trouble for it. Well, that explains so that's part of my it. interior life, anyway. Um, go ahead. That's part. Of, so that's part of one part of conspiracies. Another part of conspiracies, and this is a point made by a lot of people: um, Hugo Mercier, uh, Stephen Pinker, some philosophers. That a lot of the conspiracies we traffic in are are sort of in the abstract realm of politics and culture, and there's not really a cost for getting it wrong. If, if I believe, you know, if I believe that, uh, you know, the other side stole election, it's, it's not, it's not going to affect my everyday life. And often we're calibrated as social animals and not necessarily sort of getting the metaphysical facts right. right. My entire community thinks that, um, that uh, um, Trump stole election or Biden stole election. Right. And it's really useful for me to believe what my entire community believes. Right. Now, sometimes you can get things wrong. So if my entire community thinks you don't need to get vaccinated for COVID, well, there might be practical problems with me believing them. But for a lot of things, it just pays to, to agree with everybody. Yeah. I mean, you can also get positive reinforcement for helping the theory get off the ground, right? It, within your yes. group. Uh, you see a lot of that on Twitter, for sure. Just, you know, helping malicious uh, speculation about the other side get off the ground there's a there's a lot of reinforcement for that on twitter and you can imagine there uh you know there being a certain amount of that in in uh, a lower tech environment um that's right and 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 if you if you point to those people and say oh they have such foolish views that must how awful for them but because of their foolish views they become very popular and beloved and powerful well you know from from the standpoint of of us as evolved animals it's not at all clear they're making a mistake yeah um and I, I assume uh, you you continue your firm stand against all forms of empathy in your book. I I try not to to, to beat that drum too loudly. I don't want to lose the sympathy of the reader. In fact, I don't even think I attack empathy at all in the book. I just oh. I just focus on on um on um things that most people agree about, like the the value of cognitive empathy, which is maybe this could be a good segue for us, and the value of compassion and kindness and where all that comes from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean you. Uh, more than one person upon hearing that I'm writing a book about cognitive empathy and a book whose premise is that the world would be better off if we were by and large better at cognitive empathy, like way better off. Um, more than one person has said, oh, wait until Paul Bloom catches wind of this. Yeah. Now, one thing they're doing is conflating cognitive empathy with emotional empathy right? Cognitive empathy being just kind of perspective taking, understanding what's going on in people's minds, how they're looking at the world. Emotional empathy. I mean, I'll let you step in and define these things the way you want, but, but, uh, so, well, so first you sign off on that, uh, characterization of cognitive empathy. And then secondly, what do you mean by emotional empathy and why did you write a book, uh, casting doubts about it on its value? So, so part of the problem, which I think you're struggling with as you work on your book, is empathy means so many different different things to different people. Uh -huh. So sometimes, you know, people just use empathy to refer to kindness, you know, and, you know, so sometimes I, um, I, I, you know, somebody like, I don't know, Obama, 
sometimes you know tweet say we need more empathy in the world and then everyone mm-hmm. emails me and says i bet you're really mad that he said that you know <laughs> maybe they email him and say wait till paul bloom gets through with you <laughs> um and uh, you know people if you want to use empathy to mean kindness and compassion go ahead it's it's a perfectly you know it, it nothing wrong with it and i'm very much in favor of kindness and compassion and love and so on so that's one meaning the second meaning is cognitive empathy though i know you've been struggling to find a, a sexier name for it and cognitive empathy is sussing out what's going on in the minds of other people yeah. and knowing what they think. It doesn't imply you like them. Um, a really, a saint probably has wonderful cognitive empathy. If I'm your friend and I know what to say to make you feel better and I know a perfect gift to make you happy, that's cognitive empathy. If I want to con you or seduce you or bully you, that's also cognitive empathy. Knowing, mm-hmm. knowing what makes you tick could allow me to exploit and, 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 and harm you. Mm-hmm. One way of seeing this and this is very much, I think, in support of, of where you're going with your, with your book. Although I think we could find some disagreements, but this is very much in that direction is cognitive empathy is a form of intelligence. And like any form of intelligence, it's a good thing to have to get to your goals. And, um, and it could be, it could be used for good or for evil. Now, yeah. finally, get to emotional empathy, which is feeling what another person feels, resonating to them, putting yourself in their shoes. And this is related to cognitive empathy, obviously. You can't, I can't sort of feel your pain if I can't, unless I could figure out that you're in pain. Um, I can't share your anger unless I'm smart enough to figure out you're angry. But um, that's what I'm, I, I argue against emotional empathy as a moral guide. And one sort of, you know, the 30-second version of this is we feel emotional empathy towards people who look like us, towards people who speak our language, people of our community, of our ethnicity. And so it's very, it's a very bigoted response. And when you build a morality against a bigoted response, you get kind of a bigoted morality. In order to have a, a less bigoted morality, you have to sort of step back and apply general abstract principles and in some way not listen to your heart, but listen to your head. Right. Yeah, I, I'm largely on board with the thesis of of your book, as you know. And 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 there's a whole conversation between us about it if people want to go on YouTube and find it. Um I think in various ways, uh, emotional empathy can get in the way of what I would call uh, moral behavior. And I think one thing it can do is is impede cognitive empathy. Now, sometimes I think it can facilitate it. I'm really kind of struggling with, I mean, I haven't really sat down and tried to do it, but I know that kind of characterizing the relationship between emotional and cognitive empathy is going to be important. Because yeah. I think they're related in practice. I mean, I think they're related organically, right? Like, like you mentioned the phrase, putting yourself in their shoes in, in characterizing emotional empathy. And that can certainly be an exercise you do in the course of cognitive empathy, right? Well, for starters, what would I do if I were, uh, you know, face the things that person faces? Oh, I might feel this. I might decide that my best uh, escape hatch is this and and so on. Um, so. I mean, there, there's a lot of dimensions to the connection, I think. I mean, and you can empathize so much with someone um, that you're not, I think, seeing clearly all of the factors that are actually impinging on them and shaping their perspective, if that makes sense to you. Maybe not. Let me let me put it. Let me. Uh, well. You were about to say no. Go ahead and say no, and I'll. No, be- I, I, I think it does make sense. I think uh, 
I, I think cognitive empathy and emotional empathy are different. If it wasn't different, if they weren't different, my argument wouldn't fly at all. But they're plainly related. They're neurologically related. They're related in everyday life. One way they're related is in order to feel emotional empathy properly, you have to be able to have cognitive empathy. You have to know what a person's mental state is before you you experience it yourself. Um, another way they're related is when there's people who you're close to, you want to apply both sorts of empathy at once. Mm-hmm. But it's not hard to see how they're separate. Um, so... Well, one way to think that they're separate is, and you've, you've actually discussed cases of applying one's cognitive empathy to deal with somebody like, like Putin. And that's sort of a case. So you're not saying, oh, we should try to feel what it's like to be him so we could feel, be kind to him and be loving to him. We should feel what it's like to be him so we could deal with him right. in a way and predict his behavior and understand what's going on in a way that leads to, to a better goal. One extreme example is that of a psychopath. So some psychopaths are really good at understanding other people, but they don't care about them. In fact, maybe they want them to suffer. And, um, and I read this article that somebody who believes just there's just empathy at all. And so the person's had the view that the psychopath is like a dial. And when they want to understand a person, they turn it up high. And when they want to hurt the person, they turn it down low. But that's crazy. Right. The, yeah, that is. I mean, that's, that's an overly one. They're saying, they're saying they turn the empathy up and down. Right. They, if you only believe there's one sort of sort of empathy, exactly. you really that's, struggle. That's the you're struggling in psychopathy. You're struggling in the case of somebody who says, "I really want to know what my enemy is up to." Right. And they're not saying, "I want to love my enemy and then and, and give up and 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 give them everything I have because I care so much." For them. They say, "I want to know right what they're up to so I could kill them." In fact, I have an armchair theory that I developed a couple of days ago. <laughs> we'll see how long it lasts. <clears throat> Is it one? Is it well? First of all, I wouldn't surprise me. Psychopaths are better at cognitive empathy than the average person, actually predicting people's behavior, which I see as the kind of the bottom line. I would say the main reason yeah. we're designed uh, probably to be able to do it well. One of the reasons is to be able to predict people's behavior, and it should be one of the payoffs. And 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 I would guess that they're better uh, at that than the average person. If that turned out to be true, my speculation would be. That one reason is because they have less in the way of emotional empathy and it doesn't get in the way, their emotions get in the way less in both directions. They are, they are neither so sympathetic to the person that they can't clearly see uh, maybe some of the darker motivations in the person's mind, for example, nor are, are they, at the moment at least, uh, so full of hate toward the person that they can't see clearly. I think both of those things can impede cognitive empathy. And so my working hypothesis is maybe uh, maybe psychopaths are better at cognitive empathy because they have less emotional empathy, among other reasons. This is an interesting <laughs> idea. I'm, I, I, I'm not sure if there's some, there was a nice study done of bullies and their victims. Mm-hmm. And it turns out bullies are pretty high in cognitive empathy. That's what makes them good bullies. Mm-hmm. It's the victims who are low in cognitive empathy. That's what makes them victims. Yeah. Um, in a sort of social hierarchy, your cognitive empathy could often determine uh, where you are in this. And it's true, psychopaths have all sorts of problems. And and we shouldn't like have an overly um, romantic, dramatized view of them. Psychopaths tend to be losers. They tend to mm-hmm. they tend to they tend to have they tend to commit suicide. They tend to, they're more likely to commit suicide. They're more likely to end up in prison. They're more likely to have, to have pretty bad lives. Whatever they're lacking is hurting them. 
But there's a general blunting of emotions with mm-hmm. psychopaths. And I accept the point that, at least in theory, that could lead them to think clear, to, to understand clearly and unsentimentally the minds of other people. Mm-hmm. Now, if, my, if my wife is plotting against me, I would never see it because I'm, I'm so, oh, she's wonderful. I love her. You know, but, but if I was more cold-blooded, maybe I could see things going on that I would otherwise miss. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't. And by the way, is that what is your working definition of a psychopath? It is largely about the blunting of emotions, certainly including uh, an absence of remorse and, and yeah. kind of so, conscientious so, uh, inhibition. So one thing about psychopath, which is which is interesting, this brings back to sort of the clinical chapter of my book. I talk a lot about the idea that we shouldn't think in terms of categories like psychopath or or schizophrenic or depressed person or or somebody with an anxiety disorder. Almost all of these things are a continuum, and mm-hmm. uh, and so you ask the question, for instance, how many psychopaths are there? What percentage of American population is is a psychopath? It's a lot like asking what percentage of the American population is really tall. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you mean by really tall? If you mean right. over six foot six, that's different from over six foot four. And same with psychopaths. There's a psychopath test. Some people say you're a psychopath if you score over 28. Some people say you're a psychopath if you score over 30. What about 32? So, okay. So what is the trait that this tracks? Um, a few things. One thing is, um, is a blunting of emotions in general, a general blunting of emotions. They're not compassionate or empath- empathic. They're not, um, they, 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 they seem to sort of just have less of kind of everything. And then a real big one is lack of self-control. Mm. Now Another that's kind of counter-stereotype, isn't it? I mean, don't some people yeah. imagine a psychopath is as coolly calculated, calculating and disciplined and, and, you know, waiting for the moment very carefully for the moment where they, you know, pull the trigger or whatever. Yeah, um, I think that's sort of the Hollywood version, you know, mm-hmm. Hannibal Lecter type, you know, staying cool until he has to kill and eat people. For the most part, it goes back to the psychopaths or losers thing, which is um, a lot of psychopaths, one reason why they get into so much trouble is because they lack the discipline. You could imagine somebody going on very well in the world if they're absent human feelings, but very smart and very self-controlled. Mm-hmm. And I don't doubt some people are like that. But for the most part, psychopaths get into trouble because they end up, you know, killing the guy in the bar. They end mm-hmm. up, you know, losing control. Mixed up with just losing control is a certain fearlessness, which is not, not such a good thing. It's not such a good thing for the people around you, but it's not such a good thing for you. A certain lack of anxiety sometimes. Mm-hmm. The, um, yeah, I, I, I mean, my, my intuition is, I mean, the, I think you were the first person to say to me, look, it can't be the case that more cognitive empathy for everyone would be in all respects better because there are these bad people who yeah. who want to do things uh, to other people and will be able to do them more effectively if they have more cognitive empathy, certainly including psychopaths. Um, and I guess- but you're the one who's convinced me that if I could turn up the dial in cognitive empathy for all humans, I would, because I think most people are yeah. fundamentally well-intentioned and greater cognitive empathy would would lead them to- achieve their goals, which are for the most part, good goals. Yeah, I, I, my argument also has to do with, with an intuition about how many um, non-zero-sum games there are that fail to be converted into win-win outcomes because of a lack of cognitive empathy. Um, 
as opposed to say how many zero sum games are there where the uh, you know the suffering of the vanquished would be even greater if there were more cut you know, on, the, on the part of the victor. I mean, first of all, I think again it gets back to my thinking. Well, you know, psychopaths are probably pretty good at this already. Uh, it's, it's the victims that need more of it. Um, but anyway, it's part it's partly a thought about. I mean, what frustrates me is to look around at the number of non-zero sum games broadly construed. You know, an example is the Ukraine war. A win-win outcome would have been if the whole thing could have been avoided, right? I mean, yeah. war is actually basically a lose-lose game. Even though we say there's a victor, there are very rarely victors who don't, do not incur very, very severe costs um, in the course of it. And uh, sometimes both sides incur devastating costs, certainly nuclear wars, highly non-zero-sum. And... Uh, you know, when I look back at this, I really think there were failures, uh, well, probably on both sides to to uh, deploy cognitive empathy. I mean, Russia and the United States, uh, I, being an American, I think more about American foreign policy and the shortcomings. Um, and, and so I, I think that's one reason I spend so much time uh, trying to psychoanalyze Putin and argue that uh, we could do a much better job of imagining what's going on in his head and could have done that for the last two decades. Uh, but 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 anyway, that's that's the intuition that there's a lot of non-zero sum games that get badly played to bad outcomes because of failures of cognitive empathy. And and I guess my hypothesis, my kind of working hypothesis is kind of that on the one hand, cognitive empathy is a natural, you know, it's a part of human nature engineered by evolution in some sense. Uh, at the same time, Many of the failures of it result from things that are also uh, parts of human nature. I mean, you mentioned the idea that when we're suspicious about people conspiring about us, we may be designed by natural selection to err on the side of suspicion. Well, that's going to make you, you know, more often than not, a little bit wrong, right, about what's actually going on in their heads. That, that's one example of how even if you grant that the basic capacity for cognitive empathy is, you know, an engineered part of the brain, so are some things that that click into gear and impede it, right? I think that's right. I think there are a lot of forces impeding cognitive empathy. There's also the bigger question, which I wanted to sort of press you on, um, it, involving how good do you think we are at cognitive empathy? So, so we definitely, it's definitely essential. If mm -hmm. you have some sort of brain damage or a condition that robs you of the ability to understand other people, your life is now very difficult. It is very difficult. You, you won't understand sarcasm. You won't understand communication. Humor will lose you. It's hard to coordinate people with people. So you and I are humming along with good cognitive empathy. And we do things like coordinate. We could, we could agree to talk at four o'clock today. You mm -hmm. send me an email. I send you an email back. We're understanding each other. We assume each other is sincere. We, it all works out. But... When it comes to me figuring out what's in Vladimir Putin's head, mm. you might be more optimistic than I am about how good we are at that. Oh, uh, I don't think we've been very good. But my argument there is, I, I wrote a piece for the my, my newsletter, non-zero newsletter, not that long ago, trying to start sketching out a kind of like algorithm for exercising like cognitive empathy. Like, how do, how do you do it? Like if you, if you want to try to understand what's going on in, inside somebody's head. And I said, well, one thing you do is like, first, just say, what would I do in their shoes, right? Like suppose I'm just like 
you know, the, the, I'm, I'm leading a country and, uh, and it wanted the U.S. to do this and the U.S. does this extent, uh, instead. Try, try that for starters. And, and then stage two could be filling in anything you can figure out with some confidence about the person in question. Like there's a lot of evidence that Putin has kind of a chip on his shoulder. Yeah. Like, like uh, he's very sensitive. He's sensitive to slights. Um, and, and then there are things, you know, about, uh, people, you know, uh, autocratic leaders as time goes on and they get older, they more and more kind of often identify with the state. Like he is Russia. So more and more to insult Russia is to insult him. Right now that, yeah. that's a little conjectural. Uh, you know, you do the best you can and you try, uh, not to buy into too many sheer conjectures, but what I would, what I would say about, U.S. foreign policy is if we had just done a good job of the first part, what would we do in their shoes? You'd know there was trouble. Like, like if you if you just say, well, suppose that uh, Mexico sign, you know, they they you know they started saying we want to join this security alliance with China, and we're not joining it yet, but we want to do that. And China, meanwhile, is sending in weapons to Mexico and trainers to Mexico, and they're teaching us how to use them. Well, the history of U.S. foreign policy suggests we would stage a coup. Yeah. Uh, and, or do something dramatic. I mean, we invaded Grenada, for God's sake, on grounds that it was, it was some kind of threat to have like three communists. I forget what the deal was, but, you know, I mean, we, we've done a lot of this. So, so, you know, I would argue that, uh, yeah, in other words, we just know that we... Uh, as a great power, demand a sphere of influence, and we're willing to do certain things to preserve it. And Russia isn't quite the power we are. On the other hand, I think you could argue that a declining power yeah. that had been through the trauma of the post-Cold War era, the 90s were a, hor a horrifying time in Russia economically. And by the way, a lot of it was blamed on us because it was like, we, hey, we have this plan. It's called, you know, <laughs> it's called shock therapy. Let's see how it works. Um, anyway. If I would say, again, so so adding the fact that they're a declining power to me would mean, if anything, well, I'd be a little more careful. People people don't handle dramatic losses of status uh, with great equanimity sometimes, right? And and so that that's the general. Yeah. My general view is is if everybody just did a better job of saying, suppose I, just a human being with kind of more or less normal human impulses, what if I were in their shoes? Because I think there are a lot of cases where we are impeded, again, by human psychology from doing even that. That's a big part of my argument. So, so like two points of agreement. First, the sort of small one, which is, you know, Noam Chomsky has always said that American politicians and American public are always shocked and stunned when other countries do precisely what we always do. Mm -hmm. And and this speaks to the sort of bias you're talking about, which is, you know, when I invade a country, well, they have it coming and it's self-protective and so on. When another country does an invasion, that's a monstrous thing and I, it's unimaginable. Mm -hmm. I think it was uh, uh, Bertrand Russell who said, you should take the newspapers and take all the country names, U.S., Russia, and so on, and replace them with letters, A, B, C, and D, and then read the newspaper. And it would read so differently without yeah. your sort of coloring of bias. Um, the second thing is your theory sort of fits in with a psychological theory called simulation theory, which um, 
And the idea, and there's been a lot of controversy over, over how true this is, but I think it's sometimes true, is that my first shot at understanding how you'll behave is I run it by me. Um, and a sort of simple example of this is, suppose a very literal example, suppose I'm making spaghetti. I'm making spaghetti sauce. So, so it's for you, but I taste the sauce. Why in the world I taste the sauce? Because I figure if it's too salty to me, it's too <laughs> salty for you. If it's too spicy for me, too salty for you. Then if you tell me, oh my God, I'm allergic to mushrooms or something, then mm-hmm. I read, then I switch and then I kind of calibrate for that. But my default is me. Right. And, um, and so it, it's a plausible enough theory. And, and that can do a lot of work if you do it well, but things get in the way. And by, by the way, I wanted to ask you about this. The, uh, there is experimental social psych experimental evidence that you're probably familiar with. I actually don't know how well known this set of exper- experiments is by uh, they're, Adam Galinsky. I, I read your newsletter. Yeah. Well, then you know, you had probably heard of this stuff, right? Yeah. The, the, the idea that pa- having power, feeling as if you have power, makes you worse at cognitive empathy. Before I, before we pursue that, I want to ask you, is there a way, like if you come across an article from 20 years ago, is there a way to check and see if it's been replicated? There's, there's no magic uh, website that'll do that for you, right? There's no magic website. There are people who do good work in sort of summing up for the classic findings. Um, whether or not they've been supported or not. And the miserable news is a lot of them have not been supported. Yeah. I, I, what I would do if, if, it, if it wasn't well known is I'd go to Google Scholar and type in the article and then see who's citing it and then scan the citations looking for replications or uh-huh. extensions. Uh-huh. Okay. The, so anyway, very clever uh, experiments. Uh, you know, uh, he and his colleagues took the experimental subjects and manipulated their sense of power in a way that I would think would have some effect. I mean, they they randomly divided them into two groups and they were asked to either remember a time when they had been powerless or, or, uh, or they were asked to remember a time when they had been, had power over people and they were asked to write about it, you know, so they were really thinking about it, reconstructing it. And then the low power group was put in a second situation where they actually had no power uh, someone, you know, th- someone was deciding uh, how to allot lottery tickets and they had no say. They just had to take what they were given. And then the people in the high power group, they were in the other side. They got to distribute the tickets anyway. They did a bunch of experiments with these people. And one that I, I thought was cool, that's kind of famous, I guess, uh, is where as soon as they had, they were, they were done with this. So presumably if they had successfully manipulated their, their state of mind, uh, it, it, it was still in effect. They said, okay, here's, here's a marker. It's not toxic. We'll be able to wipe it off, but draw an E on your forehead as fast as you can. So they didn't have much time to think. And supposedly the high power people tended to draw the E like as if they were looking at a paper on a desk, Yeah. which means that people who looked at it as it appeared on the forehead saw it as backwards, whereas the lower power people were more inclined apparently to give a little thought to the audience and write an E that could be read on their forehead. That, that, that uh, who knows, but uh, it, it, it kind of makes sense to me that uh, there could be a part of the brain designed such that if you're in a powerful position and you actually can take for granted more than if you're in a low power position, the kind of uh, allegiance, subservience, whatever, of, of, of more people, um, you spend less time worrying about it. You deploy your resources otherwise, right? 
So this is Adam Glinsky's work. And, and I, I, I'm inclined, I don't know about replication. But I'm inclined to believe it too. I think these were a good series of studies, well-designed. And it makes an intuitive sense. I mean, they're, they're sort of a, a running joke in, um, in academia about emails where, you know, when I was a graduate student, I had an email to write to a professor. It would be a long thought out thing that kind of engaged in everything. Mm-hmm. And the response would often be, sure. Yeah, got it. <laughs> and now that I'm a professor, I write back to these very long emails. Yeah, gotcha. Thanks so much. Yeah. And, and there's an asymmetry for, for perfectly, you know, mm-hmm. understandable reasons. You know, when I'm, when I'm preparing to talk to Obama, I have a chance to talk to Obama. I'm having a lot of time thinking about it. What's mm-hmm. he going to think about me? How's it going to go over? If, if, if he encounters me, yeah, you know, it's not that important. And by the same token, you can get offended if someone you consider of equal stature uh, just replies to you in a super offhanded yep. way after you wrote them something very careful, right? And, 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 and avoiding that, if you think it's worth avoiding, is itself an exercise of cognitive empathy, right? Like, like not offending people is is one thing that cognitive empathy is used for. Um, I mean, to take a take a sort of a kind of out there example, but take gifts. You know, a good gift giver gives to the person what the person wants. A bad gift giver gives what they themselves want. Right. So you know, you have these these you know these these I forget who it was, but a a, a guy gave a a box set of Battlestar Galactica. To, to his wife because he loves Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> and you could understand she's being annoyed, not just because yeah. it's a bad gift for her, but because he didn't put any thought into it. Thought particularly into what does she want? And, and that's part of the sort of, I, I think it does reflect uh, a lack of caring. And I think that that itself, you know, might come out from a power asymmetry. Yeah. The, uh, so I guess maybe that football I gave my mother for Christmas, you don't think, in retrospect, she's she was uh, the the um the, the the piece you referred to where I where I talked about the Galinsky work was partly about Elon Musk because one explanation for his tweets, among others, is low cognitive empathy. Right? I mean, I, I you know if I had just yeah. bought Twitter, I would not be like angling to piss off a large number of you know influential tweeters that that presumably you want to you want them to stay on board right um and yet uh his tweets almost seem designed to do that and 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 so i threw out on the one hand there's the theory that uh power did this to him assuming something did he could just be playing seven-dimensional chess yeah he could have a total uh, and i can imagine different strategies he may have other than the obvious one but uh the other thing i threw out is he has himself said, as he puts it, he has uh, Asperger's, more commonly called uh, autism spectrum disorder. And that has, of course, been associated with, uh, well, uh, has it been associated with lower, lowering of uh, both kinds of empathy? Yeah. Cer- certainly, I think, yeah. cognitive empathy. Certainly cognitive empathy. Um, uh, you know, the, the classic findings with people on the spectrum is, for instance, they have difficulty understanding other people that hold beliefs different than they do. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, I, I think that I, I enjoyed the Elon Musk article. Um, and I think things since that got published, he's been continuing to do things that seem ridiculously um, foolish. 
somebody described, maybe it was you, somebody said that that tweet where he, um, where he, he partially endorsed a conspiracy theory about the attack on Paul Pelosi may have been the most uh, uh, expensive tweet in human history because it might have scared away millions, maybe billions of dollars in mm-hmm. advertising. So he's, he's doing things which seem really dumb. And, and if I think about that, I think of somebody else who does things which seem really dumb from a cognitive empathy standpoint, which Donald is Trump. Trump. Yeah. yeah. But then, and this is a challenge to both of us who see right. cognitive empathy right. essentially, these are in some objective sense, very successful people. Yeah. So how can you be so, if cognitive empathy is so darn important, how can you be so successful without it? Yeah, because, you know, he's been kind of behaving like this uh, at Tesla. And, and I'm like, well, wait, it didn't used to be that people who ran big car companies seemed this yes. indifferent to whether people like them, but it's working for him. And again, he him. may be playing a different game. Like uh, he could actually want to turn Twitter into uh, more of a right-wing uh, site where he's worshipped. And by the way, <laughs> I don't want to go too far in my uh, crazy... 70 chess speculations, but I think before long, he's going to have to sell a lot of these ridiculous looking pickup trucks in like red state America. And one way I can see to do it is if they are like synonymous with anti-left, anti-woke, I'll bet he can sell some. I mean, I'm not saying that's the main purpose here, but if he's thinking this through, like how much downside is there at this point to acquiring a big, uh, you know, anti-woke constituency? I don't know. But and, and there's another, there's another possibility. So he he tweeted a couple of days ago. Everybody vote Republican. We have mm-hmm. a Democratic president vote Republican for balance. Now, if I was in charge of Twitter, so do do your algorithm of putting myself in in that position, I would not do that, right. even if it's what I believe, because um you you annoy about over well over half of the people on Twitter with this. Why would you ever do that? But to be charitable. Maybe he sees this as it's really important people do it. And he might say, I got a cognitive empathy to realize this is going to annoy a lot of people. But that's the principal thing. I'm going to say it anyway. Mm -hmm. And that would be be not an error, but a choice. I think there is a possibility that he just has a philosophy of life where like Elon's going to be Elon. And it's working so far. Um, That's certainly possible. Now, now the the, uh, autism spectrum issue gets... Back to the question of whether cognitive empathy can be thought of as an adaptation, because sometimes, so first of all, how would we describe what we mean by adaptation? To an evolutionary psychologist, an adaptation is like, it's like a designed organ, kind of. The eyeball is uh, an adaptation. And I will, let me read you from uh, Lita Cosmetas and John uh, Tooby, their, their, their 1994 paper, Origins of Domain Specificity, The Evolution of Functional Organization, in which they argue the human mind is not just some kind of general purpose computer. It has specific kind of, you might say, organs within it. Uh, not that they're spatially uh, discrete. They, they, draw on the, they may draw on lots of parts of the brain, but they're functionally discrete, integrated things. And they write, uh, in, in they're, they're, they're referencing the idea that what they would call a theory of the mind is innate to people. In other words, a tendency to think about what's going on in other people's minds. And they write, it appears that humans come into the world with a tendency to organize their understanding of the actions of others in terms of beliefs, desires, and other desires and other mental ent- entities, just as they organize patterns in their two-dimensional retinal array 
under the assumption that the world is three-dimensional and that objects are permanent, bounded, and solid. So they're arguing that the so-called theory of mind is an adaptation. And sometimes the among the evidence marshaled to argue that something's an adaptation is uh, the study of people who have deficits in a capacity. Right. Famous cases, of course, Phineas Gage, what is it? He had a spike driven through a particular part of his brain and and uh, then he was lacking a number of things. Um, but uh, what do you have you kept up with this? I, I, I know you had, well, I, I gather Simon Baron Cohen was among the first to talk about theory of mind yeah. as a thing. And I know you've had interaction with him over empathy. What's your, do you have a take on all this stuff? Yeah, I do. I, I, I agree with you and I totally agree with uh, Lita and John about this. I think a cognitive empathy shows every sign of being a biological adaptation. It, um, if it's an adaptation, that means it, it, it came to exist because of the benefits and survival and reproduction fitness benefits it gave to our ancestors. And you just look at the world now, you look at people who vary in their cognitive empathy skill set, it's extremely um, adaptive and useful. It, it's it's it understanding other people, being able to predict other people, being able to know what other people like and and dislike is extremely powerful. And then you get to the case. There's also very emerging early capacities for it. Um, by by age of about one, for instance, kids start to point. They start to draw attention of other people. Check that out. Look at that. And you might think, well, that's not such a big deal. But no other animal does it. Chimps don't do it. Monkeys don't do it. They lack this basic understanding that, oh, there's these other minds out there that could attend or not attend. And then finally, it's what you're saying, which is there's specific deficits. And there's a lot more going on in autism or aut autistic spectrum disorder than theory of mind problems. There's various sensory issues. There, there's, there's, there's a cluster of activities, some of which don't have much to do with theory of mind at all. But Definitely difficulty in understanding and dealing with and making sense of other people is part of what goes on in, in at least the more severe cases. Yeah. And when you and when you talk to people who suffer, who who are uh, who suffer from the syndrome, but 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 are able to communicate and interact in the world, they will tell you this. They will tell you about their struggles dealing with people that the you know, at a certain point, I think we could talk about people being uh, uh, neuroatypical. And um, and what they'll say is often the world is very unforgiving and difficult for those of us who have problems, you know, understanding other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, I by, by the way, on chimps, I came across a paper by Premack and somebody from a long time ago. I was skeptical. It argued that they had found a kind of cognitive empathy in chimps. I don't know if you're familiar with this study. It seemed kind of. One reason I was skeptical is they said they showed them videotapes of people and they correctly inferred, uh, they made some kind of correct inference about what the people's goal was. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, do you have any idea if that's held up? I'm, I'm skeptical on a number of grounds, but uh, so, so, again, probably zero replication, I would guess. So there's a huge literature on, on non-human primates, chimps and monkeys and the like, and how much sort of theory of mind, cognitive empathy they have. And the answer is never zero. They, mm -hmm. they can they can understand purposeful action. They can um, they can engage in sort of various activities, suggesting that they understand that other people that other people and other other uh, members of their species have other minds. But it seems to be strikingly limited. There's was a, a whole research program trying to get these animals to show some signs they understand lying or deception, and mm -hmm. they just they just don't. 
Um, Michael Tomasello has written a lot about this, and he's very he's very uh, thoughtful about this. But even Franz de Waal, who's who's very very enthusiastic about the moral capacities of non-human primates, I think he he readily admit that their theory of mind capacities are very limited, mm-hmm. and that may be maybe the big reasons reason why we're here and they're there, why we've created you know enormous cultures and societies, and and we're here talking on Zoom, and they're you know behind bars and zoos. Yeah. I don't mean to sound punitive. No, so, no, you don't. Uh, you do sound like you have, a, there's, a, there's an air of superiority there. When you, when you think about well, chimpanzees, it, it almost seems as if you're assigning yourself a higher level in the status hierarchy. If I was but, facing a chimpanzee, I would draw an E in my head so like only I could see it. Uh, yeah, I would run. Chimps are, uh, I would not want to go mano a mano with a chimp. Um, you know, so, you know uh, I, I know a lot. I know a lot of primate researchers, um, and what many of them have in common is the missing fingers. Is that right? Often, these animals, if you if you are, are unattentive to them, yeah. um, they're They'll extremely just strong. Take a digit or two. Yeah. Um, so you know the the. Uh, I mean, if we grant that, I mean, first of all, would you say theory? What what is called theory of mind? Going back, uh, I guess, to Simon Baron Cohen, that more or less is cognitive empathy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I would too, but I still think there's a lot of work to be done in terms of like the very, the actual workings of the adaptation. Okay. Uh, this is, you know, John and Lee to have a pretty abstract description of cognitive empathy here. And, you know, for example, just the imaginative act of putting yourself in someone's shoes which is clearly something I think that people everywhere do. Uh, but to what extent is that? Like one tool yeah. in the kit of cognitive empathy. And, and, and also like what selective pressures was this adaptation of cognitive empathy? Did it come in response to? Um, you know, John and, and Lita have a separate uh, paper about uh, cognitive adaptations for social exchange. And yeah. you can certainly imagine if you're bargaining with someone, uh, you know, I'll give you this much food for that much food. Uh, it can help. Successful bargainers are uh, do tend to try to come up with some idea of what's going on in the other person's mind, how much they want the thing you have and things like that. Um, but, you know, if you if you I'm going to read you their kind of uh, description of a social contract situation. And I would say it, it's also broad enough to include what we consider moral discourse, which is a closely related, I think, but in some ways separate uh, realm within which there could be selective pressure. Anyway, here's what they say. We can define a social contract as a situation in which an individual is obligated to satisfy a requirement of some kind, usually at some cost to him or herself in order to be entitled to receive a benefit from another individual or group. Well, uh, you know, with with moral systems, we incur costs. Uh, we res- we refrain from doing things that could benefit us in exchange for getting uh, maybe the the benefit of the whole normative system we're participating in, or yeah. whatever. In, in exchange for being treated uh, with restraint by others, um, and yet that's not exactly the same as bargaining, right? Does that make any sense? <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. There's there's what what falls under rubric of theory of mind is a lot of things. Mm-hmm. It's everything from me watching you bang your your thumb with a hammer and flinching immediately 
you know, which is which is a form of I understand you're in pain. I got it. I feel the pain myself now. I get emotional empathy too, all the way to abstract things like knowing that people um, people get hungry. Uh, sorry, get 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 grumpy if they don't eat for long enough, or knowing that dictators towards the end of their terms might get you know increasingly aggressive. You have to sort of more propositional knowledge. There's mm-hmm. a, a huge umbrella for what it what it, it includes, and it does connect to morality in a lot of ways. I think morality is separate from theory of mind, but I also think it requires it. If 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 you were incapable of appreciating that others suffer, uh-huh. I can't imagine how you'd have any morality at all. There's that. And I also think, um, I wonder if a natural go-to move for humans, you know, like when you hear about some controversial thing someone has done and you're going to be asked to pronounce on it, was it good or bad? Was it defensible or should we hate them or what? It seems to me like what feels like a very natural first go-to move is to say, would I have done that? Uh, Have I done the same thing In, in like circumstances? There's, uh, you know, Peter Singer, uh, you know, has written about the fact that that humans everywhere, unlike other animals, seem to be compelled to uh, to defend uh, certain kinds of actions in kind of uh, universal terms. In other words, they have yeah. to say, well, anybody in my shoes would have done this or would have been entitled to do it. I'm not asking for anything special, but. It seems to me, I'm just saying there is, it seems to me that a certain amount of our moral thought, there is a, a, an organic feeling kind of move where we do the, the thought experiment of putting ourselves in other people's shoes. Right? No, I, I think that's a deep point. I never thought of it that way before. But, but what Singer points out in his book, The Expanding Circle, is mm-hmm. like you said, every, more, every philosophy, every religion, has some sort of universalizable thing, the golden rule, um, the sort of summing up that utilitarians do, universal laws of Kant, the impartial spectator of Smith, uh, the veil of ignorance of Rawls. These are all uh, various ways of saying, you know, in order to figure out what something is, you've got to put yourself in others' perspectives and universalize it. And um, and I think that 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 would be impossible without some sort of cognitive Empathy. I mean, take take something as simple as uh, uh, do unto others as you wish they would do unto you requires a monitoring of your own responses. And it's basically an injunction to do what you describe as your first stage, which is right. which is take others' mental states as, as your own. And then you realize it's kind of limited. Like I would like um, I would like people to give me chocolate. But maybe you're allergic to chocolate, so I have to. I, I can't do it simple in a simple minded sense. I have to abstract it out, give right. people what they want. Right. You know, and and. And I think that's true. I also think that there's an interesting uh, split between non-zero sum games and zero sum games in this regard, which is when it comes to, from an evolutionary point of view, when it comes to coordinated action as to our mutual benefit, theory of mind can kind of ratchet up and get better and better and better. And that could be stuff like the evolution of language, for instance. But when it comes to zero sum games, there's sort of um, one interesting thing about theory of mind is that we're terrible at detecting liars. And you might wonder, well, if, if theory of mind is very important to deck liars, people, why aren't we people, gen- people generally are, are bad at it? Yeah. People generally are very bad at it. And, but the answer is that we have evolved, we have been rushing to evolve a capacity to read other people's lies. But then we have also evolved the capacity to hide our own lies. Mm-hmm. So it's an arms race that has ended up in a sort of stalemate. Mm-hmm. And see, that's, a, that's kind of a good example 
of what I meant when I said empathy can get in the way of co- emotional empathy can get in the way of cognitive empathy. Like if I'm uh, observing my say back when my daughters were younger and I'm watching them interact with kids and, and maybe there's a dispute, maybe whatever I am. Uh, I'm trying to think. I mean, I, I just think it can happen that sympathy with a person can make you less likely to suspect that they are lying. I don't mean to you so much. I mean, parents have a healthy skepticism of what their kids say to them. But I mean, if they're like on the playground, I'm just saying you're going to, you're going to, when you imagine what's going on in the mind of say your daughter on the playground as a six-year-old in a dispute, the way you're thinking about their mind, the way you're thinking about the mind of the kid they're having a dispute with, it's going to be very different. I mean, for starters, you may say, well, uh, now sometimes it may, there may be great clarity and you say, I know her well enough to know she's actually acting out of insecurity, although she looks mean. She looks like a bully. Whereas the kid who hits her, you're not thinking, oh, well, maybe they feel insecure. You know, you're not going to do that, uh, that, that move with them. You're at least you're less likely to. And, and, and sometimes the sympathy can lead to clarity of cognitive empathy, but I think it can, it can work both ways. If that, I think that's, I think that's true. Um, you know, Josh Nob has, has, had a lot of really smart things to say about this. Is he, he, says is he that, still at Yale or is he, what is he? Where? So a philosophy uh-huh. professor at Yale. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and done enormous contributions to psychology as well. And, and Josh points out, you might be tempted to think, well, you read people, you figure out what people are up to, and then you do a moral evaluation of it. You know, if they're, if they have, if they're have a bad intent, they're, they're a bad person, maybe doing something wrong, but it's more likely the opposite where you figure out what you, what's good and what's bad based on your tribal identification, based on what you want to be true or bad, and then you apply the, the, the intentional interpretation. It's a fancy way of saying that if you're my friend, I'll tend to think the best of you and the best right. of your goals. Right. If you're my enemy, I'll think the worst of you. And that could really contaminate right. projects of cognitive energy. And what I was going to say was sometimes with friends, with allies, you're better off not thinking maybe they're lying. I mean, if they're lying to you, sure. But if you're seeing them lie to somebody on the other team, it's like uh, you may have a lower sensitivity to that than you might when you're evaluating the other team is, is what I mean. Um, it, goes, it goes back to what we were talking about before, which is what, with regard to conspiracy theories, what would you rather be objectively uh, truthful or in a happy marriage with, with your friends loving you and your children getting along with you. Sometimes right. a rosy view of those you love, maybe it's objectively incorrect or veers towards incorrectness, but, but it makes your life a lot better. Yeah. Yeah. But Go ahead. I'm still, I, I, I guess I just want to push you a little bit more on the issue of accuracy. I'll give you a real example. Um, Trump is making a murmur that he's going to announce that he's going to run for president. Well, I would get, I think there's people in the world, other other Republican politicians would give a lot to know, is he going to do this and when? Mm -hmm. And I don't have, I don't know if we could know. I think when it comes to just about everything difficult, the minds of other people, these other people who are strangers, who we don't know deeply and love and deeply connected to they're kind of mysteries to us they oh i think people are uh you just you know it's always a game of probabilities yeah you're never you're never going to know for sure but the question is can you improve your track record uh and um I mean, I'll give you an example of something that is has kind of famously haunted our species and is not totally unrelated 
to your conspiracy theory thing about false positives, which is, you know, international relations scholars talk about something called a security dilemma. And it actually has a couple of different meanings. I, I mean, it involves reading moves that may be meant defensively as offensive, okay? So, well, well Russia's a good example. We were sending these weapons into Ukraine. We did not think of, that they would be used for an attack on Russia. R Russia, I think, did perceive it as more of a, uh, a threat. And uh, in, in, the, in the classic security dilemma, that isn't always because of a misreading of intentions per se, but, but I, I won't get into that asterisk. The point is, sometimes it is. And uh, apparently often it is. I mean, this is classic reading of World War I is that there was a certain amount of this going on. Each side thought the, the arms buildup on the other side was offensive and so had to be countered. And so it went on and on and on. And the mutual su suspicion persisted. And that led to World War I. There are a yeah. lot of uh, examples like that. And they, they have happened enough that I think, you know, the world would be on balance a better place uh, if people were better at entertaining the hypothesis that uh, something another country does that they're reading is offensive may not be offensive in intent. Yeah. So it's, it's a, you won't always be right. But if you, you know, if you can avoid one out of two world wars, yeah, that's a win, you know? I mean, <laughs> I, think, I think that's true, but it also runs a little bit against the sort of precautionary principle we talked about, which right. is I, nobody wants World War III. And, and that, that is the risk behind a lot of this. But if, if there's, there's a substantial, there's, there's, even a small chance that these people I'm coming to have a peaceful meeting with will come with guns. It right. behooves me to bring guns myself. Right. And this is the problem of the prisoner's dilemma, which is that there's a mutually, there, there's a solution that works best for all of us. We both come in unarmed. Mm -hmm. But, but it, it might be tempting for you to bring in a gun because if I'm unarmed, you get everything. Yeah. It's tempting for me. And now we have the second order thing, which is I know it's tempting for you. And maybe, and if there's, you know, if, if, there's, if there's any doubt, there's no doubt. And so yeah. we both come in guns blazing. And yeah. that's the problem of foreign policy, maybe. Yeah. Um, now, people would give as a counterexample to when I mentioned World War I, you know, Munich in 1938 yeah. and say we should have been more uh, suspicious of uh, Hitler. Um, the, uh, and, and yeah, obviously, I, well, there, there's actually a revisionist theory about Chamberlain that maybe he, he knew what was going on, but felt he had to buy time to arm and so on and and but but in yeah, any event charitable. yeah probably the, the classic reading of of chamberlain is that he was uh naive and there i mean i would say first of all well in that case he didn't exercise cognitive empathy well he did he wasn't sufficiently yeah. suspicious of hitler there is such a thing as that um but uh it's certainly the case that you can be wrong and pay a price uh of course one thing that happens with the modern world is sometimes your environment where something that evolved and made sense, more sense in a hunter-gatherer environment in a world of nuclear weapons doesn't make sense, right? And, and, and that can right. happen too. I but, think that's right. Um, I mean, one thing I've been thinking about as we're talking is um, Philip Tetlock has studied super forecasters, mm -hmm. which are the sorts of people who are really good at actually predicting when Trump will, will decide to be, or, or what's going to happen in Ukraine and so on. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if these people have high cognitive empathy. It'd be nice support 
for your view if they did, because so many of the predictive decisions you make are decisions about what other people do. That would be a good study. I mean, presumably somebody has had the, the thought of doing studies on these people of various kinds, right? I mean, uh, you know, just like uh, affective, average affective, you know, intensity, for example, to yeah. see if they are, uh, you know, a stereotype would have it cool and and reflective as opposed to emotional or something. I don't know. But, That's such a good question. I, I I can't off the top of my head think of a single study uh, on people who are, have exceptionally high cognitive empathy and what happens to them. I could give you, I give you study after study of people who have exceptional math skills and, and verbal skills. They do very well right. in life. Um, people like Abigail Marsh have studied people who are, are very, very moral, the sort of people who give away their kidney. And we know a lot about those people. Mm-hmm. People with high cognitive empathy, it's, it's such a good question. Hmm. So anyway, this is what I'm trying to figure out these days. Uh, and Have you decided uh, a, a better name for cognitive empathy? No, I'm kind of torn. I mean, I don't think it's such a terrible uh, term myself because it, I, I mean, I think there's something to be said for a term that needs to be clarified, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Like, uh, like, like, you know, uh, I, uh, this isn't exactly the same thing, but I call, I titled the book of mine non-zero and I thought one virtue of it was that every time I was on a radio show or something, the first question is what the hell does this word mean? And then you're, then you're spending the first five minutes talking about the title of your book. That's not a bad thing. Very <laughs> but, sly. <laughs> uh, but, uh, um, you know, uh, somebody suggested like, I mean, to me, perspective taking, Putting yourself in their I, shoes is not a lot sexier, uh, right? No. I mean, what I, it, it, it's less ambiguous. It's less prone to misunderstanding. But see, the other thing is, I do think a big part of the story, as you tell the story and you get into like, why do you get blowback when you try to exercise cognitive empathy sometimes? You wind up talking about emotional empathy. Yeah. Uh, because I think people are afraid that uh, that directing cognitive empathy toward Putin will lead to emotional empathy, and yeah. honestly, it could, given the way human nature works. Not a crazy thought, but but my larger point is, I think I think there's a lot of interesting interplay between the two that makes uh, certainly makes the word empathy a natural one to introduce. But I gather you're among those who think uh, not brilliant marketing to uh, to put that on your flag, cognitive empathy. Well, it, it it has a dry sense to it and may not want to end up in the title. But mm-hmm. but I like the term because uh, the cognitive part makes it entirely clear you're talking about a subtype of empathy and, and actually does a very good job of, of getting mm-hmm. your central claim across. I, no. I wouldn't, I, only a fool would use empathy, just no modification in their title. Too easy to mis- get misunderstood. Yeah. I mean, people have used other terms that have something to be said for them. Um, but I don't, uh, I don't know. I, I, I kind of like cold empathy, but because that's kind of the part of empathy it is. But, uh, you know, yeah. strategic empathy it's, and, you know. Strategic uh, empathy is not bad. People have used that a little. Uh, Another it, phrase is Machiavellian intelligence. Yeah. I mean, some of these like strategic and Machiavellian almost to me connote zero sum games a little too much but that's right uh, that's right it's strange to say use machiavellian intelligence when deciding what to get your daughter for a present exactly uh so i don't know but uh enough about me so what are you 
So you're in this, uh, how much of your time is being consumed in anticipation of your, your big book coming out? Um, I got the second pass proofs back yesterday. So not very much. Yeah. I, I have to go, undergo soon the humiliating uh, process of getting blurbers. Oh, I, yes. People say nice things about my book. And I've I, been I there. Just, I, we've, we've all been there. And I think we've all been on the other side of it. And it just feels, I don't know. It's my least favorite part of the process. Yeah, we 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 share that reaction. Um, I had a book once where the publisher didn't even, The Evolution of God, they didn't even bring the subject up, I don't think. They just, it was a blurbless jacket. Did well. Did well. Wow, okay. Okay. Yeah. Maybe it saved me a lot of, a lot of trouble. Uh, tell that them was that. a fine book, but I, I wrote a review, but you could have used my review. You, as a, you as did a write a review of that book, and it was on the cover of the New York Times book review. Did I ever say thank you for that? Um, huh. God, that was, that was what, 13 years ago? Oh, God. Oh, God world. Yeah, I know. Scary. Um, somebody, somebody we both know was, was angry at me for writing that positive review. Jerry Coyne? Yes. There we Bingo. Go. <laughs> Pretty good, huh? Very good. Like, I'm amazed I, you only have one, one enemy that you would just pick out like that. At first I thought, well, all the people who wouldn't think that that was a good book, that's too many. But then I thought, oh, how many would feel so intensely about it that yeah. they'd actually give him blowback? Jerry Coyne. <laughs> um, so, uh, well, he, uh, don't get me started. He, he did a review in the New Republic. Uh, and you wrote a response. I saw that back and forth. I, I did write a response. The... Um, uh, so what are you, are you starting on, on any new academic uh, research ventures or anything you want to talk about? Um, I'm actually getting interested in perversity and perverse choices. I've, I've always been interested. My last book, Sweet Spot, was a little bit about our liking. I was going to say, that seems pain like and a struggle and difficulty. Yeah. But I'm, I'm kind of interested in why people do things that they know are, um, are evil or that they know are irrational. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, and and so I'm, I'm I'm actually giving a talk on this in in a month and right today spent the whole day sort of putting together slides and thinking my way through it. Um, I find writing and preparing a talk actually a very good way of sort of coming to terms with what I believe about something. You know, it'd be a good survey to do. Ask people if they have something they've done that they've never told anyone about because it would be considered bad and they will never tell anyone about. Including like their spouse, yeah. you know. I, I, what would you guess the percentage of people who, if truth be told, would say yes, there is something like that? A hundred percent. Close. I think everybody. Well, okay. There, there's always people who are. There's always outliers in everything. Right. Nothing's a hundred percent when it comes to people. But, but I think we all have something that we're ashamed of. Would Even you like small... to get that burden off of your shoulders right now, Paul? If only we had a parrot room, then, then, then we could just take that aside. And, hey, and, and, we'd welcome you in the parrot room, especially if you're going to unload uh, that burden uh, on us. I think, um, I think by its very nature, it's not the kind of thing you want to put online. So I think for many people, it would be very small. Like, I think that there's a full-blown thing, like, you know, I don't know, I, I, I killed a man once and buried his body. Yeah. But, I, but I also think there's something, I lied about something that was really, or Disney really mean to somebody. Not the biggest thing mm. in the world, but things mm. that, 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 to be to be ashamed of, you know. I actually have. If you go on my Twitter, um, my pin tweet is the Perversity Project. I don't ask your question, but I ask people whether uh, to to write me and tell me to fill in this Qualtrics form um, about something they did that was perverse. 
mm-hmm. an activity that they did that they that they um that they uh, uh, knew was wrong, and they did it anyway. And I got some wonderful responses. Um, my my favorite, I got a response from people who do little things like they give the wrong name when asked by a barista, what's what's your name, and do little things like that. <laughs> oh, man. If I felt um, guilty about that kind of shit, I would be writhing in remorse. Yeah. Some, um, of the heavy, some of the heavy-duty stuff was like, oh, my God. I don't yeah. want to have you. And your Twitter handle, if people want to do this, is Paul Bloom at Yale, one word. I, now, I contend that this is the reason you have a blue check and I don't. I forgot to put at Yale on the end of my name. Of course, that's because I never taught at Yale, but no. details. I could just feel guilty about that for the rest of my life if I had said it. I know that since, since my home, my academic home now is University of Toronto, um, I, maybe I should change it. But if I change it, I lose my blue check mark. No, you don't want to do that. But now, but now, who knows what's going to happen? Well, that? supposedly anyway, in three months, you will lose it unless you pay up. We'll see if Elon delivers on that threat. Um, we'll see. Well, I, I'm very curious whether a year from now, Twitter will be in a shambles and everybody will have gone to um, Mastodon or something. But um, Or whether it'll just be the same old social website. And these are just growing pains. I said right when he bought it, this will be a test of the strength of network effects. You know, how... Yes. How hard is it to leave a place where everybody else is since you can't coordinate and leave along with everybody whose presence there matters to you? Um, And I'm still thinking they're pretty strong. I mean, certainly journalists (laughs) just can't afford to leave. I mean, they can't promote their work on Mastodon the way they can on Twitter. That's right. Uh, Even if a lot of people flock to Mastodon, it'll take a lot of flock. I'm a... Yeah. I'm surprised Mastodon is, according to everybody I hear, so terrible, so complicated and messy to get onto. If someone just did a basic clone of Twitter, um, yeah, I could imagine a lot of people flocking. But the way it would happen would be they would be on both. And then, and then when enough people were on both, then you could shift it. You're totally right about network effects, but net, but but social media structures have died. MySpace and whatever. Yeah, no, it can happen. They died. It can happen. I, I think he's going to convert it into something wholly other. Could yeah. be a uh, right-wing site. Uh, it could be uh, TikTok. It could be something where um, you make you, you buy a lot of stuff. They have your credit card information. I think it's going to become... Yeah. I, I, I am deeply worried that it is going to cease to be what he said he wanted to keep it, which is... Uh, town square where where yeah. where per town hall or whatever where where you know people engage in important discourse you know we'll, a we'll lot see. of it a, you know there's a lot of people like to complain about twitter and, and i there's a lot of really bad behavior on it and i there have been times when i've been been hugely annoyed at myself for spending too much time on it but in some ways it's a wonderful thing mm-hmm. it's just a wonderful thing i follow I follow a couple of hundred people who I respect and who often say very interesting and funny things. I learn about everything through Twitter. And I have, I'm lucky enough to have enough followers that I ask questions related to my work. And and people chime in and answer, give me feedback. Yeah. And it's just a wonderful resource. And, uh, and, it's and best, if Elon Musk drives it to the ground, I will be, be very upset. Well, the good news is the network effects are strong. And uh, so people may stay, but it would be a shame if we no longer had an ideologically diverse view of Twitter, because say what you will, I'm sure some people have gone off to the, you know, truth social or whatever. Um, But the fact is a lot of traditional conservatives are on Twitter and a lot of Trumpists 
elites yeah. are still on Twitter. And, and uh, you know, I think, I think that's better than the alternative. I, I can't believe that Musk would want it to be a right wing only site. I mean, does he really want it to decrease by 70%? So of the explanations of him doing things like tweeting vote Republican, yeah. Oh. Uh there's there's uh wants to make it right wing site. There's uh no cognitive empathy. There's uh you know, Elon's philosophy is life is you gotta be Elon. Uh there's I enjoy fucking with people's heads. There's I don't know. What what are the yeah. what's your favorite explanation? I still put in there that Elon might have a genuine moral view. You should vote Republican and wants to share it with people. Um, but then again, this is the same guy who makes, you know, he's recently doing masturbation jokes. I missed so that one. It, Apparently he did a masturbation joke about Mastodon. And obviously yes. it suggests itself, but I missed it. I don't suppose you want to share it. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I don't want to get it wrong. Um, no, no, you don't want to but, screw up a good masturbation joke. No, it's, like, uh, you know, it, it, in, in some way, in some way I find, I, there really are two types of people in the world. And, um, and there are people who find a lot of charm and wonder in Elon Musk and some admiration for him, despite a lot of things he does, which are awful. That kind of person um, and, and is, I think, often entertaining and often makes the world a much better place. And then there are people who see nothing good in, in him. And I'm, you know, I'm in the first group. I'm not a fanboy. I think he's done this disastrously. But I kind of want him to succeed. He's done a lot of admirable stuff. And I'd like to see Twitter be a force for good. So I want him to succeed in that sense. Um, but he does keep doing these things that make me research Mastodon, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see. Uh, we'll see. Okay. So, Paul, thank you. Um, we should say, by the way, this won't air right away. So by the time uh, we this airs, Twitter could be a paragon of civil uh, and diverse discourse, or it could be a shambles. We don't know. Also, also, people will know whether or not we still have a democracy. That too. Oh, God, please. I, I, I'm glad I scheduled this because this is at least, uh, you know, an hour or so when I don't have to think about the election that's yeah. happening right now. Same. Even right. I, I, said, I said earlier, I'm in Canada. I'm free from this, but you can't be free from this. No. We are the hegemonic power in your hemisphere. You have to care. Exactly. Thank you. This was a great conversation. Thank you, Paul. Good luck with the book. It's called Psych. People can, they can, they can, uh, they can, you don't object to advance orders this far in advance, I, right? I don't, I don't. I don't, you should do advance orders now because what if it all sold out at the beginning and you, you know, right. you left nothing. Right, get your, yeah. You want to be at the front of the line, folks. The competition's going to be fierce. I'm right. sure it's going to be a great book. Everybody should, uh, should get it. Why not Thank now? You. Thank you. I ask you. Okay, so we will do this again. And, you know, I'd like to do it again when the book actually comes out. If, if I would it, really appreciate with that. With your permission. That well, I, I would be honored. Yeah, okay. So we will, we will plan on that. Hope to see you before then, but if not, I will see you then. See you then.